The Word of God comes to us this morning in Acts chapter 25, verses 1 through 12. That's Acts chapter 25, verses 1 through 12. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered to Caesar, you have appealed to Caesar, you shall go. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. Thank you, uh, Phil, for the reading, and uh, thank you, Hugh, for the prayer. Uh, our brother Phil has this voice of a news anchor. You can probably tell. I, I told him he should start a podcast or something, you know, breaking news, you know, from first century, you know, Israel or whatever. Um, <clears throat> all right, today we're uh, in part 42 in our Acts series that began in, I, I check my records, everyone, January of 2021, so it's been nearly two years in this series. Uh, and I hope that this series has served to challenge your faith in some way and that your understanding of how we as Christians should engage with the unbelieving culture around us has been shaped by the lessons we've been learning together. Uh, last week, I mentioned how my admiration and respect for the Apostle Paul has grown through this study. But, you know, this series is titled The Acts of the Holy Spirit, for a reason. It's so that, you know, when we do become inspired by the courage and faithful obedience of people like the Apostle Paul in the midst of his incredible hardships, uh, we would not forget to remember that apart from God's grace, Paul is actually nothing. That it was the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit that enabled Paul to joyfully persevere through the unimaginable sufferings he experienced as a follower of Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, as we hear from God's word today once again, uh, may our hearts be attentive to the work of the Holy Spirit more than anything else. Amen? And so, may we learn to place our trust more fully 
in the work of God instead of the work of man, which we are prone to do. Uh, there are two parts to the message today. Uh, part one, and today is more of a thinking message, okay? Uh, so I, I hope you, you're ready to sort of think through this passage with me. Part one, Governor Festus's political dilemma and the myth of government neutrality. Okay, that, that second bit is, it might seem a little heady to some of you, but I'm, I'm going to try to make it so that's very comprehensible, okay? So Governor Festus's political dilemma and the myth of government neutrality. And then part two, Paul's faith dilemma and the priority of trusting in God's sovereignty. Okay, so I'm going to break the message in two parts. So number one, Governor Festus's political dilemma and the myth of government neutrality. Okay, let me begin by saying a few words about Governor Festus. First of all, uh, he wasn't a procrastinator like his predecessor, Felix. Uh, I hope you remember what we talked about last Sunday, okay? We, we basically describe Felix as a procrastinating opportunist, okay? He was the previous governor. And I'm going to highlight the key indicators that tell us that Festus was a more determined and principled man compared to Felix, okay? Uh, in verse 1, for instance, it says, Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. So he was in Caesarea, and now he's making a trip to Jerusalem, only after three days of taking office. It's like, wow. <laughs> like if you're a newly elected governor, I would think you'd want to make sure you're you're kind of settled into your new position and that you spend at least, I mean, if I were him, like, I would spend at least a full week, you know, getting my office organized, getting my staff organized, you know, going on maybe a staff retreat, as I just did, uh, spending some time with them. But notice that it only took Festus three days, right, to make this trip from Caesarea to Jerusalem so that he can spend some time with the Jewish leaders, and by specifying this timeline, you know, Luke, the author here, is telling us that Festus prioritized this case, and unlike Felix, his predecessor, he did not want to delay in processing this case, nor did he want to defer this case to the next governor in line. Not only that, it says he stayed in Jerusalem for eight to ten days in verse six. So why? We have to ask, why is that? Why did, you know... Eight, I understand maybe two, three days, you know, but eight to ten days is interesting, you know, and it's likely because he didn't quite grasp the complicated relationship between Jews and Christians in his day. You know, he didn't have like a Jewish wife like Felix did, you know, he didn't, you know, uh, have the proper understanding, and so he needed extra time to, to understand the complexities of this relationship, you know. He had to understand why the Jews were so angry at Paul and why Felix decided to keep Paul in prison for two whole years. You know, I'm thinking he had to basically uh, take a crash course in Christian theology and understand how the resurrection of Christ was being interpreted by these two very different groups. Because you, you, can't, you can't judge a case you don't understand. And so if I'm judging Festus 
purely based on his work ethic, he looks very solid to me. Like, I kind of like this guy. I would choose him over Felix, the procrastinating opportunist, any day. Like, I respect people like him who are eager to get work done and who, who do their very best to learn what they need to know in order to make an informed decision. Festus had these basic qualities. For that reason, I, I kind of like this guy. However, you know, be that as it may, this doesn't mean that Festus wasn't corrupt. Right? He was, like Felix, bound by the moral vision and the ideals of Rome, which basically made him corrupt, just like his predecessor Felix. In other words, he existed to serve Rome. And if he woke up one day and decided to not serve Rome, then guess what? Rome would have no problem just spitting him out. These last two chapters we've been covering uh, makes perfect sense when you think of it this way, okay? The main responsibility of every governor under Rome was to maintain peace and order within their assigned jurisdiction, right? That's the main reason why Felix chose to keep Paul in prison for two years, even though he knew very well that Paul was innocent. In his mind, he accurately assessed that if he released Paul, the Jews would have revolted. And Caesar, who was at the time the notorious Nero, he would have heard of this Jewish revolt in Jerusalem, and Felix would have been in big trouble. Well, Festus is the one who, who now has to solve this Jewish problem because he, he inherits it from his predecessor, and he too becomes quickly aware that releasing Paul would not be a very smart political move. This is why politics is very complicated. Releasing Paul would have been the right thing to do. It would have been the just thing to do. But see, if you're trying to preserve your governorship in Rome and even perhaps your life before this violent Caesar, Nero, it was not a smart thing to do. It would have been essentially political suicide. I mean, look, at, look at how Festus tries to slither his way out of this very complicated political dilemma. Verse 7, when he had arrived, the Jews had come down from Jerusalem, so they make their charges, and then Paul defends him in a standard way. We covered that already, but the same thing. The Jews make their charges, Paul defends himself. And then Festus, this is his response after hearing the charges and defense. He says, wishing to do the Jews a favor, knowing that just he didn't want to rile them up, but he didn't want to cause any further drama. He said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Okay, so Paul, I'll make the trip as well. I'll, I'll be there too, but, you know, you want to consider going to Jerusalem? And, and of course, Festus knew what the Jews were thinking. They knew that they were planning to ambush Paul on the way and take him out. And so he, he makes this offer, hoping that, that Paul would bite. But it made no legal sense for Paul, who, who was a Roman citizen, to be tried in hostile territory, Jerusalem. 
But of course, again, Festus is thinking, if, if, he just, if I get him to volunteer, then, then this would basically solve this Jewish problem that's been in, that I inherited. Right? It'd be an easy way to kind of clean his hands from this. But Paul rightly declines, and he appeals to Caesar. And so Festus decides to get this problem off his hands by quickly honoring Paul's request and moving this case forward right, towards Caesar. Uh, but even that had a risk. Even that had a risk. Because it could be perceived as, you know, if you're in the upper courts receiving this case from Festus, you could be thinking, why are you sending this case to us? You know, were you not able to handle this case on your own? Are you not competent enough? You know, and, and then Porcius Festus' name would be circulated. Now, the, the governor who could not solve this Jewish problem just like his predecessor. And see, so it, there was that risk as well. And so the, the way I see it is that these governors were stuck between a rock and a hard place, as the saying goes. Like if they did the right thing and let Paul go, the Jews would have revolted and they'd be politically ruined. And if they sent this case up to the higher courts, their reputations could possibly be damaged. And so Festus, he, he chose a less risky option, in my view. And so I, I wanted to just lay that out there because I know if you're just reading this passage, especially for the first time, it makes absolutely no sense to you. But that, that's what's being, uh, being explained here. Okay? That, that's what's happening. That's how the story unfolds. Now, before I talk about Paul's faith dilemma in the second part of this message, I wanted us to just pause for a moment and Reflect upon the myth of government neutrality as we are forced in, in a way to consider here the relationship between the Roman government and Christians during the first century. First of all, I hope you can clearly see by now that the Roman justice system was not really a just system. I hope you see the corruption. But I hope you also realize that when we say that the Roman justice system wasn't a just system, right, we're saying that it's not a just system based on what we believe to be true and right and just. You know, from Rome's perspective, they were doing nothing wrong because they operated based on a different moral code. For example... Caesar was not only considered the supreme ruler, but depending on who held that position, Caesar was to be worshipped as God himself. And if any earthly power threatened Caesar's lordship, see, in their minds, it was just to wipe them out. Pastor Hugh, can you, do you mind like uh, shutting the blinds over there? It's like, blinding me. <laughs> it, would, it would have been just for them to wipe them out, you know, which ultimately did happen, by the way, even with the Jews. Uh, see, it wasn't just Christians who were considered a nuisance to Rome. As you know, the Jews were also a monotheistic group. And so they, they too were not tolerated by Rome either. Right, for those of you who may not know, okay, uh, this is sort of like standard Christian history, but 
systematic Christian persecution by Rome okay, begins to happen under Emperor Nero himself just a few years later. So think, think from this event here that we're reading, like five, six years down the road, the, the explicit persecution of Christians begin to happen, like serious, very violent persecution. It's like Nero wasn't going to even try to be diplomatic anymore toward these Christians who refused to acknowledge his lordship. And if you know your Christian history, you also know that Rome decided to solve the Jewish problem they had, not, not just the Christian problem, but the Jewish problem in AD 70 by destroying the city of Jerusalem along with the Jewish temple that their laws once protected. That's how bad it got. It's like, forget it, we're not going to be diplomatic anymore to any of these groups. This is wipe them out was their method. But why do I mention these things? I mention it because there's great relevancy to us and to the culture we're living in now. Now, because when Christians allow governments to be established without any reference to God's moral law, this is the kind of government that is created. It's a very common phenomenon. This is actually what most governments have been like throughout human history. You know, Rome here was a totalitarian regime, and, and most governments throughout the world have been some form of this. Unfortunately, many people in our day, and I wouldn't be surprised if some of you still believe this as well, but many people believe that earthy governments should never be influenced by any kind of religion and that it should seek to always remain religiously neutral. And I'm here to tell you it's not possible. There is no such thing. But, you know, unfortunately, this view has become the dominant view in our country. This is the view that is taught in most schools, and it's misguided, it's wrong, it makes no sense, it's irrational. I want you to look at what happens to our schools and to our culture when we allow other godless belief systems, I would, I would say even, I, I would put it this way, other godless religions to shape them while we remain silent for the most part. One uh, insightful theologian and pastor writes, this exclude religion stance is wrong. First of all, it's wrong from a constitutional viewpoint because it twists the positive ideal of freedom of religion to mean freedom from all religious influence, which is entirely different than something the signers of the Declaration of Independence and the framers of the U.S. Constitution never intended. The first two sentences of the Declaration of Independence actually mention God twice to say that God's laws authorize independence from Great Britain. In addition... The phrase that is so often used and misused, separation of church and state, 
does not occur anywhere in the Constitution. It was first seen in a letter from Thomas Jefferson in 1802 in which he assured some Baptists in Connecticut that the government will, will not interfere with the affairs of their church because there was some concern there. And so the phrase was originally used to assure Christians that there would be no government control over their religious lives. It wasn't the other way around. It wasn't that, you know, that this phrase was meant to say that, that government should be free from your religious influence. That's not what this, this expression meant. But that's how it's being used all the time these days. You know, but the main reason why we must not buy into this excluded religion stance is because it's just not possible to exclude religious thought from government. I mean, there is no such thing. Like, if you think that the Christian faith or, you know, Judaism or Islam is the only religion and atheism somehow is not religious, then you're just naive. You have a very, you know, like a grade school understanding of religion. Every government will be inevitably shaped by something, by some belief systems, some form of religion. You know, some governments are shaped by Roman ideals and the worship of Caesar as supreme God, as we see here in our story. Some will be shaped more by the Quran or the worship of Allah, right? Not the same God, by the way, we worship, if you're confused about that. Some governments will be shaped more by the Bible, and some, like the U.S. government of the 2021 and 2022 era, will be shaped more by the religion of secular atheism and what many have called woke religion. They have no problem using that term. That is a religion as well. Many people in our country, they want us to superficially create a divide between religion on one side that only includes Christianity and a few other major religions and then atheism on the other side. And the only one, the only player allowed to shape public policy and the laws of the land are, guess who, this side. I mean, what kind of superficial categorization is that? Please do not be hoodwinked by such faulty logic and reason, right? Not if you're a Cornerstone member. And if you haven't thought about this yet, please do so. I'll give you more content to process in your small groups this week. Like, what do you think gives atheists and committed secularists the right to speak freely in the public square and shape important public policy while Christians are repeatedly canceled and, and regularly censored and labeled as extreme right or labeled as gasp, Christian nationalists. That's, that's a more recent tactic that uh, the elites and the media have used, has used. And I, I wanna encourage you not to be intimidated by such tactics because these things are being used as a tool to silence people like me and also many of you who simply believe that our Christian faith 
yes, it should influence government and its policies, and that the laws of our land should more closely reflect biblical morality. Why is that wrong? It's good for everyone. It's like if you believe that it's good for everyone, then guess what? Based on the current definition, you are a Christian nationalist, and you'll be mocked and ridiculed, and you'll be asked to shut up. Does that seem right to you? I hope not. You know, people are so morally confused that they've convinced themselves that castrating a 60-year-old boy and giving a 12-year-old girl a double mastectomy is actually a good thing. That is the world in which we live. That's what happens when you remove yourself from any kind of governance of Scripture, of God's law. And we need as Christians to appeal to people's consciences, but ultimately to appeal to God's moral law in hopes that people will wake up from their spiritual slumber. See, we need much more Christian influence, not less. And so please, do not remain passive or silent or cowardly in expressing your Christian beliefs. I had much more I actually wanted to say, but I'm going to skip and uh, I'll, I'll save it for maybe your small group discussions, okay? So let me, let me uh, shift over to part two. Paul's faith dilemma and the priority of trusting in God's sovereignty. I touched upon this last Sunday, but it personally amazes me that Paul was able to quietly spend the past two years basically rotting in prison fully knowing that he was being treated unjustly by a corrupt regime. Luke surprisingly says nothing about <laughs> what Paul was feeling or you know, how, how, what he was doing uh, in any detail, but I mean, that, that's, that's how his life went. He was in prison for two whole years. That's amazing. Because even the best of us have a, have a threshold, don't we? That when reached... We mentally break, and that's when our hearts begin to grow bitter toward God. It's like we're happy, you know, we're joyful, and, you know, we love life until that threshold is met, and then we become angry and hateful and bitter. And as I was thinking about Paul's situation, I thought to myself that it must be especially hard for people who are known to be gifted and competent in the work they do. I mean, anyone, is anyone going to deny that Paul was a gifted and competent man? Arguably the, the greatest missionary who ever lived? It's like, imagine, I thought of this example because I personally have great respect for Steve Jobs, not, not as a person, but just as an innovator, you know, as a gifted innovator, right? He's the one who basically transformed the, the world of Apple, and, uh, you know, we can talk about whether that's a good thing or not, but I'm just saying, as, a, <laughs> as an innovator, he did some amazing things, right? So imagine if, if an extremely gifted innovator like Steve Jobs was prevented from sharing his gifts with the world because he was unjustly punished 
for a crime he never committed. What would happen then? Well, not only would all the techies in the world think to themselves, what a waste of his gifts, release this man. (laughs) But Steve Jobs would also feel like he could offer so much more to the world if he was allowed to freely innovate, right? And just do what he's gifted in doing. That would, that would be his mind. That would be anyone's sort of mindset, right? Release this man. Let this man share his gifts with the world. And I thought to myself, it's the same thing with someone like the Apostle Paul. Like he could have easily grown bitter and resentful toward God, feeling like his gifts were being squandered away in prison for two whole years and counting. But the amazing thing is that instead of growing angry and resentful toward God, he quietly used his time in prison to write the epistles known as the prison epistles. What are they? I mentioned the last time. Ephesians, right? Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon are the four that are considered the prison epistles. And what do you think enabled Paul to endure such great injustice without growing bitter and becoming hardened. Could it be his deep trust in the sovereignty of God and the knowledge that God's ways are higher than his own? I want to let Paul speak for himself here. Let me just lift a passage from one of the prison epistles, Philippians chapter 1. This is how he processed his suffering, okay? It's amazing to me. This is not human. This is superhuman. This is only from God. This only can come from the work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 12, rather, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What? (laughs) So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So he's looking at it really from God's bigger perspective. He's not focused in on his suffering in prison. He's thinking, okay, what, what could God possibly be doing by imprisoning me for two years here? And that, this is what he sees. People who would have never heard the gospel, hearing the gospel for the first time. God giving, giving him access to governors and kings of Rome. And brothers outside who would have probably been kept, you know, paralyzed by their cowardly fear, now being emboldened to speak freely to others of the gospel of Christ. So he sees what God is doing, and he gives thanks. That, that's, that's how he processes this. And I, I want you to contrast Paul's incredible faith with how we tend to respond in our sinful flesh, because sometimes it helps to contrast our foolish behavior, right? my foolish behavior, with what God actually desires from me. I shared this example with you before, uh, it's, been, it's been many years, actually. It's a good example, though, that illustrates human folly. 
Right? There's a movie that I watched as a teenager. I actually remember <laughs> watching it with my friends when I was in Korea. The movie was titled Misery, in which Kathy Bates played a psychotic killer and actually won an Oscar for her masterful performance. In this movie, she rescues a famous romance novelist from the road because, you know, he, he drives through a blizzard. He basically crashes his car from the accident. He breaks his leg. He dislocates his shoulder. And so she takes him into her house without letting anyone know. So that kind of gives, kind of gives you a hint how the movie may go later on. And uh, she, she keeps on using this refrain that she is his number one fan. I'm your number one fan in the, in the nicest voice, voice possible. And she lets him know how much she absolutely loves his books. And so while he's fully recovering, he thinks it would be okay to share his unpublished manuscripts for her to read and for her to, you know, uh, I guess, assess and, and give her input. And, and that's when the movie turns into this psychological thriller because Kathy Bates' character changes just like that, right, from this warm, pleasant, and happy nurse to this angry, hateful, and psychotic killer who will do whatever she can to get what she wants. Okay? And that, that's what gave her the Oscar, this amazing, this, this character transformation. And her problem is that she, she did not want this author to kill off one of the characters named Misery in his own story. So you can't do that. No, you, you cannot do that. <laughs> do not kill this character. And he soon realizes that she's not a sane person, and he attempts to escape, so she punishes him. I won't mention the gruesome scene, but she does something violent, and it, it really... It, troubled me as a teenager, like, to see that. <laughs> and after watching that movie, I had dreams of Kathy Bates standing next to my bed at night with a sledgehammer in her hands. So you don't have to watch the movie, okay? Don't watch the movie. You just have to remember that what that movie portrays is our common human response to God whenever we don't like how our story unfolds. It's like, what do we do whenever we are unhappy with our life circumstances? And whenever we don't like the story that's been written, aren't we tempted to curse God and demand that he change the storyline? It's like, I don't like how my life is going. I don't like the life you've given to me. Rewrite my story is our heart's cry. Rewrite my story, God, and we curse him. In preparing for this message, I, I was reminded that uh, John Bunyan, if you don't know him, you need to read more Christian literature <laughs> or let your kids read these kinds of books. But John Bunyan, uh, he had spent 12 years in prison, not just two years, 12 years in prison, not under Rome, but under the English monarchy because they began to punish nonconformists like himself. His reason for imprisonment was not too different from the Apostle Paul's, if you think about it. See, but without John Bunyan's imprisonment and the suffering he experienced thereafter, 
there would have been no Pilgrim's Progress, right? A book that is considered to be one of the most influential books of all Christian literature. Did you know that? You know, when I visited uh, our local homeschool co-op, some of you may have seen the picture on our Facebook page. It's called Classical Conversations. Uh, we used to be part of that, and uh, we took a break, and now we're back with their younger kids. But I, I saw, I met, you know, during uh, Daddy Donuts Day, was it called? I forget the name. Right? Daddy, Daddy Donuts Day? Donuts with Daddy? Okay. Donuts with Daddy. <laughs> I, I, I bumped into, uh, you know, our deacon Danny. He was there. And uh, his son, Hajun, uh, who's in the same class as my Joshua. <clears throat> and we had donuts together. We took a picture. And, and uh, as we were kind of sitting chatting, I noticed Hajin reading a, a big book, a hardcover book, and it had Pilgrim's Progress on it in big type. <clears throat> and Danny told me that that book is Hajin's favorite book right now. Do you know when John Bunyan died? He died in 1688. <laughs> but his writings, which illustrate the various trials of the Christian life and testify of God's amazing grace, it continues to shape the hearts and minds of people, young and old. Do you think Bunyan would have ever imagined that a six-year-old, is he six? A six-year-old Korean-American boy who barely speaks English, I'm just kidding, he got better. But even, <laughs> even, even last year, he struggled to understand English. It's amazing. In one year, he improved so much. But he, you know, he's better in Korean than English. But he's reading this book. Do you think Bunyan would have ever imagined this, this kid from Northern Virginia, that, that he would count his book to be one of his favorites? Of course not. But God knew because God's ways are always higher than ours, and his purposes are always greater. You have to be able to see that. You have to be able to see beyond your sufferings. And trust in God's sovereign hand in your life. Let me close the message by reading just some passages that highlight what God's sovereignty looks like. Okay, I'll just read four verses. First is from Job, right? And of course, you, you should know that Job suffered greatly. And so this, this verse essentially informs us that God is sovereign over our personal tragedies, Right, the loss of family, the loss of our health. Job confesses at the end of the story, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That, that is a posture of humility. That's an acknowledgement that all the tragedies he experienced ultimately was in God's hands and he had a purpose for it. Proverbs 19 informs us that God is sovereign over the direction of our lives. What direction is your life going, brothers and sisters? Can you trust God in it? As many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Right? God will direct our steps in the end if you just trust in him, walk in obedience to his will. Don't try to outsmart him. Humble yourselves. 
Proverbs 21 informs us that God is sovereign over the hearts of kings. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. This implies, of course, that see, if God is able to turn the hearts of kings, right, these incredibly powerful men, then, of course, he can turn the hearts of every person. He is that sovereign. And lastly, Psalm 139 informs us that God is sovereign over all the days of our lives, every day, the good days and the bad days. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. This is what God's word tells us. Can you trust in the Lord? Can you trust in his word? Let's pray together. Dear Father, though the world may be against us and often stand directly opposed to your will, we thank you for reminding us that you are always seated on, on your throne and ultimately in control of every circumstance, no matter how big or small. You are the sovereign one who makes nations rise and fall, and your word tells us that the king's heart is a stream of water in your hands and that you have the power to turn it wherever you will. You also say that all things, good or bad, work together for the good of those who love you and that nothing and no one can thwart your sovereign plans. And for that reason, we find comfort in you, O oh Lord, and our hearts find rest in your sovereign will. Lord, as my brothers and sisters look to you and find rest for their souls, may you renew their strength and empower them to faithfully live as sojourners and pilgrims in this world enduring through every trial and hardship that may come their way, clinging to the cross, trusting in your sovereign plans, knowing that you will complete the work that you've begun in their lives. Lord, grant us the heart of faith and the posture of humility. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We'll stand together, give praise to God.